Hello and welcome. My name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 2 of Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. On my Norwegian podcast I usually interview horse people I've met that in one way or another have played a significant part in my own journey with horses. But I also invite people I have never met, but I'm really curious about. People that bring something to the table, of value for human beings dealing with horses, or animals for that matter. Today's guest is horse advocate, clinician and author Anna Blake. By far one of the most interesting horsewomen I've come across in ages. So sit back and enjoy the ride. So Anna Blake, I'm really, really proud and happy to have you on my show and to talk to you about horses and your philosophy when it comes to horses. Thank you. Um, for my Norwegian audience, uh, I think there will be some of them who are not familiar with your work. So I would say something about your relaxed and forward philosophy. Um, on your webpage, you say that we train with a profound concern for the horse's mental and physical welfare. It says we listen to his calming signal to learn his perspective. And we affirm the horse's intelligence empowering him to his confidence with positive energy. And last but not least, you put the horse first. And already there, I'm like, I have to talk to her. <laughs> and then there are all the stories that you have on Facebook. And for my, my listeners, I'm going to put some of the links up on my webpage. When you talk about Vinnie the Thoroughbred, when you talk about building the bubble and how to get into the equine conversation, it's wonderful stuff. But the, but the thing that really made me think that I really have to invite this woman first was when you said or wrote on Facebook, there is a shift in paradigm happening in understanding and working with animals and women are on the cutting edge. Lead with confidence because we are right about this. And that's really kind of my starting point. Can you elaborate? <laughs> well, you know, first of all, how... You can, it sounds so arrogant to say we're right about this, but I can tell you how to tell if you're right about it. Your horse will tell you. They're the ones that know. Uh, I think everybody says they put their horse first, but that's kind of, um, that's not so easy as, as people make it out to be. Um, and so, yeah, I want to be thinking about how the horse thinks. And we have had a, um, you know, an approach to horsemanship that has uh, been based in a belief of dominance. And I think it started because somebody, some, some person looked at a herd of horses and saw stallions fighting on the hilltop and said, well, that's it. It's about domination. Uh, and then eventually it dawned on them that actually the mares were the ones running the herd. So then they decided uh, to make up names for mares that were, I guess for a mixed audience, I'll say unflattering. And then somebody else looked at the herd and said, boy, you know, they seem cooperative to me. They seem like they get along. They seem like they depend on each other. 
they seem, you know, if you can watch a small group of horses standing head to tail, belly to belly, and not think that that is something special, well, then I think you're, I, I think fight with the stallions on the hilltop if you like. But, you know, to me, I believe the second paradigm. I believe it's about getting along for horses. And, um, and so affirmative training is very much based, you know, I want to say standing shoulder to shoulder with horses as opposed to face to face. And it's literally how I stand. But it's also just that approach. Can I see it the way they see it? Um, and that would involve, of course, my ego sitting down and shutting up. That would involve my uh, fairy tale fantasies about love stories with horses uh, to perhaps sit down and shut up as well. Um, the people who I work with are not prone to beat their horses half to death. They probably love them a little more than they could, could be healthy. But, you know, I just want to look at that affirmative working together standpoint. We keep saying we want a partnership. Well, that means there has to be two voices. That's what a partnership means. It's more than one. And so I just am always going to approach a horse um, with a partnership in mind. So is it your experience as it is mine that in theory, everybody would agree, but in practice, this is rarely done? Yeah. Well, yeah. It, and some of it is just a, a misunderstanding of how horses literally think. And, um, you know, they have a different brain than ours. Uh, some people want to say, um, you know, that horses uh, evade work because they're lazy or they have a plan for world domination by uh, getting your breeches dirty or, you know, that there's some huge well thought out deceit plan that horses have. And they don't, that's frontal lobe stuff. That's what humans do. Um, horses don't have the same frontal lobe. They can't respect us because they don't have that process in their brain. Um, they have a huge amygdala and it's mainly two parts and one is emotion and one is memory. Well, boy, that's a good combination to have right, <laughs> right next to each other. What could possibly go wrong there? And, and so we have to approach them with that understanding of how they think. And horses are flight animals, so they live constantly in the moment. Their senses are so much more astute than ours are that we might as well be blind hairless mice. Um, the, the way to communicate with a horse is to get out of our frontal lobe, which they will never share with us and to get into the moment and the actual activity of their emotions in the environment. 
and in that realm, we can talk all day. We can be understood. They can be understood. Um, you know, Dominus, by definition, says, uh, I am above that, which is a frontal lobe opinion. <laughs> and, you know, I, from when I was a kid to my years competing, to my years as a clinician, there's really never been a time that my frontal lobe has helped me all that much when I'm standing next to a horse. <laughs> and so I really try to get into my senses and into the moment that the horse is in. Um, and in that, you know, anything's possible then. Did you have like a shift in your work with horses, where you went from something else and into this way of thinking? And can you remember what made you change? Or did you kind of, were you kind of one of those girls who were intact and had that innate wisdom and balance and you kept it all the way? Where, where are you in all of this? <laughs> oh God. Um, you, you know, I grew up on a farm and uh, we used animals hard. And my family um, was rough in many ways. And so my introduction to horses was, you know, pretty dominating. Um, as an adult, uh, the people who I trained with were very kind to horses. I never worked with an abusive trainer. Um, I always trained with women but it's just a habit of mine to hire women if I can. Uh, you know, whether it's repairing my electricity or helping me ride my horse. Um, I think the biggest change came for me when I bought my farm uh, because I had kind of, I was having a midlife crisis. Everything I could lose, I lost, you know. And so I bring two horses and two dogs to this little farm and what I want to say is, I didn't have any problems with my horses. I wasn't looking for a different answer. I had horses that people envied. Uh, the judges' comments on my horses usually was something like happy horse. Um, I had no problems and I moved to this isolated place and I don't have any friends and I have a fantasy that I'm Jane Goodall and who doesn't want to have that fantasy. And what I noticed was that there was a huge bunch of conversation going on that I was not involved in. And I knew a lot and I was enviable and I was knocked off my feet by um, conversations that I just was unaware of. And around that time, um, I, I had a rescue dog that was kind of complicated. And someone suggested Turid Rugas's book on calming signals. And, and, and it was great with the dog, but it just really related to horses. And I felt like she was talking about the things I'd been seeing for the last couple of years that was really impacting how I was training this new language that I was seeing. And then I found out the name for it later, which is usually the way I learn things kind of backwards. 
Um, and I wrote a blog about calming signals and um, named Turid, credited her book, said, you know, I feel like I see this with horses and I feel like um, we are rude by those in that language. Our, our approach to horses is more rude than we're aware that it is. And at this time, there was no books or, you know, people talking about calming signals with horses? Uh, well, no. However, <laughs> it was really close. Um, you know, when my my blog went viral and um, I got an email with Turd Rugas's name and the address line and I was a little unnerved. And she said, thank you, I grew up on horse farms. This is totally the language of horses. And a student of mine is writing a book on calming signals for horses. And boy, it's a book I really recommend. Um, I'm gonna pronounce her name badly, forgive me. Her name is Rachel Dresma, I think. And yeah, and she's written a book on equine calming signals that I think is really valuable. And then um, I've been writing about it on my blog uh, since uh, for six years now. And, and I guess the other thing that I wanna say is um, you know, more and more scientists are coming up uh, with research that is based on using human um, brain scanning equipment like MRIs and things like that. And we're discovering more about how all animals think. And in 2012, before Turid's book came out, uh, there was a Cambridge Declaration of Consciousness and it was signed by a bunch of scientists and Stephen Hawking and a bunch of uh, notable people who said that animals have consciousness. Mm. And, you know, for those of us who and have had horses- And feelings also, as it turns out. <laughs> oh, emotions, yeah, <laughs> emotions. And the quote is not unlike our own. Similar, different, similar, different. But, um, you know, I think it's really important to say that because uh, the brutality that went on on my farm, my, my family farm growing up was certainly not out of any standard behavior at all. Um, and, you know, in that paradigm, a horse is a beast of burden. Um, and, you know, you just force them to do what you want. I, I mean, it didn't occur to anybody to try to get on a different side of them because it was um, a harebrained idea that some people like Xenophon had. <laughs> um, you know, I think both schools of training have always existed, um, but this compassionate method, methods of training. Um, you know, the thing that's really exciting about it now is that science shows up and, and backs that kind of training, saying if a horse is in his sympathetic nervous system, if he is frightened, he cannot learn. Okay, how about we don't do that then? 
<laughs> how about we build their confidence mm. and allow instead. them to stay in the learning frame of mind yeah exactly and you know i think um you know instinct is one of the words that you and i have used in conversation and um the horse's instinct is to get along to you know be as agreeable as he can within his frame of reference um and i think you know so many of us um don't like what we see but we don't know that there's another choice um that there are things that are easy to find on the internet um and you know apropos of of uh how we started this conversation um you know i was at a meeting uh and there was a man speaking who um was hard to listen to and then he said that he was on the cutting edge of a new paradigm for horses and i looked at him and shook my head because not including me not including me I could tell you 20 women trainers I know who are really doing some profound work with horses and understanding and partnership. Um, you know, we're better at this than, than we think we are by a long shot. But still we sit in the back of the bus. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've gotten to an age where I'm not comfortable back there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but you said something when we started talking about that there is a real change. And that's that's the way I see it as well. I mean, I, I started to write my first novel in in the mid nineties and it was called The Horse Whisperer. And then Nicholas Evans came with his book and we were inspired by the same trainers. And I was really devastated because that was supposed to be my book. It would have been not the international bestseller like he wrote it because I was really focusing on the horses, not the love story, but anyways. And then it took me like 10 or 15 years and then I was really happy that I didn't write that book because then you kind of started to see the side effects of what we thought then was really a new way of looking at horses and treating horses that was really groundbreaking. Then you saw how they are dulled down, how they... What do you call it in English? Um, learned helplessness. Yeah, learned helplessness. Yep. Yeah, that I find is a bigger and bigger issue in my end because I see a lot of horses that are completely shut down, and and you know people will kind of run them through different color, kinds of systems, and they will say, "Oh, he's so much calmer now." And I'm thinking, that's not the word I would use when I see him. He's not calmer. He's he's dull and he's dead. That's different. So, so one of the things I'm really hoping that we kind of can explore is how to help people see the real horse, his calming signals, his cooperation. Because people say they're stupid, they're lazy, and they're cunning. <laughs> and I'm like, no, they're the opposite of all that. That's not what I see in horses at all. I've never seen or been with a, a sentient being that is so willing to cooperate 
like yeah. you said, we are so insensitive and rude. Well, yeah. And there is a different intelligence that comes with memory. They don't have creative thought like we do, but they do have memory. And and when you say crazy... creative thought, be very specific. Uh, um, I have a plan for world domination. A horse would never say, I'm going to write... Um, it, you know, I just have to say this about the horse whisperer, because, you, you know, you can't be people like us and not, you know, the movie came out and 20 people wanted to go with me. And I'm glad you didn't write it. It was a chick flick. It wasn't about horse training. And, and as usual, never... and as usual, at least in the film the horse would pay the ultimate price to fix the problem. The girl was traumatized, but the horse is the one who's going to be brought to the ground. And I'm thinking, what the... Well, I got to tell you, as somebody who actually does rehab horses in that situation, they will never make a movie about it because it will <laughs> it'll be like an 80-hour-long miniseries of watching paint dry, that's what it will look like because, yeah, because a horse that is really broken, um, you know, it's not gonna turn around in the span of a book or a movie and be interesting uh, for people to watch. And I, I laugh about this, I do, because of COVID, I've started teaching online and my clients, uh, students, uh, bring a video every week and watching these video videos. I mean, we laugh our heads off at how um, spellbindingly dull they would look to anybody but us. But, you know, here's the deal about um, a horse that shut down. Um, first off, all horses are a little stoic and they do that for their personal safety. You don't want to be the one in the herd that limps. You don't want to be the one in the herd uh, that looks weak. And so horses are never incredibly forthright about how they feel. And then beyond that, uh, some horses will kind of get reactive and some will get quiet. And yeah, we have perceived those quiet ones as well-behaved some of the time. But I got to tell you, a stoic horse is much more challenging in my mind to work with than a reactive horse. Reactive horses are, are, are kind of telling you everything they think and they're wearing their heart on their sleeve and they're really easy to get in a conversation with and you can breathe your way out of it with them pretty easily. The stoic horses, you know, um, we tend to, in the silence of being with a stoic horse, humans don't like silence. And so we tend to make up stories in the silence. And that's the challenge. You've got to be quiet a really long time before a stoic horse will speak up. And so some of those videos in class are like, you know, we see an eye blink and the group in the Zoom meeting cheers, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I but, recognize this with the friends that I have in Norway. You know, well, I've, I've been sitting yeah. ringside and watching different trainers and we're, we're really 
mesmerized by what we're watching. And and for you know two or three people next to us, it's like watching, like you said, paint dry. And I think maybe that yeah. is some of the challenges about female trainers opposed to male trainers, that it is a silent, soft-spoken language. And it isn't, you know, flags and necessarily yeah. a lot of circus, but it is, it's, it's calm and down to earth and, and real in a way. But it's, um, it's not really crowd pleasing. <laughs> one of my friends says that the problem with how I train is that it's nebulous. Oh, can you give me an... Well, if I told you, um, I have a three-step process that will totally heal, change your horse and make him a solid citizen, $5,000. I mean, I think half the people would be digging around for $5,000. And the reason I don't have a three-step, six-step, thousand step plan is because each horse is an individual. The reason that a training technique doesn't work is that all horses are different. And so I think what you're, what you were alluding to earlier, and I'm going to talk about videos, you know, uh, I'm having trouble with my horse. So I go on YouTube and I find a video about training horses. And it looks to me to be like my horse's problem. So I pay the money and I watch the video and then I go outside and my horse goes off plan in the first 30 seconds. And so I do the technique and when I don't get a result, I do the technique more. And then when I don't get a, and I don't notice my own frustration and now I'm scaring my horse, but I don't even notice that I'm doing that because I'm, focused with my frontal lobe on the plan as opposed to so I'm having a conversation with the guy or woman in YouTube while I'm out here live with my horse I need to be live with my horse not talking to the video the reason specific techniques don't work on all horses is because it isn't what we train it's how we train it and some breeds learn differently. Yeah, they do. Not differently. Yeah, but they are different. different yeah, absolutely. It is like it's like yeah. with humans. I'm I'm brought up in Norway. Sometimes it's really dark, and sometimes it's really cold. And and they, it's not like it's a, an abundance of of food hanging off the trees. And and that makes you different. And it's the same with horses. Yeah. I think it, absolutely for sure they're all horses. But I have seen that so many times in clinics that they are also really, really different. And breed is one of the things that makes them different. Yeah, and, and I totally agree. I hear trainers tell me uh, breed doesn't matter and sex doesn't matter, but that's just, yeah, that's just crazy. Um, and so uh, when a horse is frightened, lots of things shut down when they're in their sympathetic nervous system. If they're in their parasympathetic nervous system, and we just ask them a question and then we let them figure out the answer. We don't answer it for them. And you know, the example I'll use will be really simple. I'll walk a horse up to a tarp on the ground. I'm going to assume my horse knows because we're standing in front of a tarp what I've got on my mind. 
I should I really don't have to cue him anymore. He's probably going to try and graze a little bit at the edge of the tarp. Even if it's on dirt, he'll pretend to graze. Well, that's a calming signal. That's him saying, I'm no threat. I just need a minute here. So yeah, I'm going to give him a minute. And maybe but he'll Many people away. wouldn't. That's where it starts. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, but the bliss of calming signals is instead of having a conversation with myself about how much I want my horse to show off and get on this tarp faster than anybody else's horse, frontal lobe garbage, I'm actually living the dream I had as a little girl. I'm literally having a conversation with a horse. It's all I ever wanted to do. It's all any of us ever wanted. And if you go to where their brain is, you can do that. You know, you can. And so uh, he, he looks at it and I see him furrow his eyebrows. I'm gonna give him an exhale, which is literally a cue to my own nervous system to go into the restive restorative phase. And it's literally a cue for him as well. So now I have a cue to relax my horse. <laughs> How is this not working? <laughs> How is this not working? So what I can tell you is if I'm standing there um, with a, a thoroughbred or an Arabian um, or a horse that uh, is a real bold temperament, they'll say something like, Oh, okay, I don't know, let's just do it, let's just do it. I don't care if it's right, I don't care if it's wrong, let's just do it. Honey, take a breath, come on back. Let's just breathe and approach this quietly. So you you help them to slow down and really be in the moment for real? I'm not looking, yeah, I am never looking for a fast answer because fast answers are dangerous answers. Um, and so if I'm standing next to a draft horse, I can tell you draft breeds and donkeys and mules and a few other breeds, boy, they like to think they love it. And so I can see him thinking there. Uh, yeah, I'm going to let him think because when he thinks horses, if it feels to you like your horse is hardwired to spook, they literally are. Their, their legs are connected to their, that's what a flight response is, is connected to the part of their brain and they can like almost get in a rut of panic. But if I can engage my horse's mind to think, he can actually build new neural pathways until the day he dies, he can build new neural pathways. And by the way, so can we, so no excuses. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, if he wants to stand around and think about it, oh, I've got all day. I have all day. Um, for some horses that are stoic and quarter horses fall into category of stoicness, um, you know, we have been taught previously some version of ask, tell, make. Um, and if we haven't been taught it, it's just how humans are, we're impatient that way. If they don't hear us, we talk louder. And, and there are a lot of times, and this is a view that I got when I became a trainer, 
that I had never had before. Now that I'm standing on the ground in the arena, I really see horses, instead of when the second ask comes, instead of going on, they, they brace. Because what we've taught them to do is to flinch when they get a cue because they know something else is coming that's worse. If this draft horse, I mean, he may be going particularly slow in the process of thinking because he's been hurried in the past. He's afraid to think about it because he gets punished when he thinks. My God, we are punishing horses for thinking. That's- I know. <laughs> Surely when you say it, it makes so much sense, but it's I just the way you said it now, it was uh, it was a painful second there, I think, realizing that well, that's is exactly what we're doing. Yeah, that's what shutting a horse down is. When people say left brain and right brain with horses. Oh, you know. I'm gonna I'm gonna disappoint you right here. I'm dyslexic, and so I can I can't remember my right or left, and I can never. It's just not a way that I think about horses. I just don't think about them that way. But when you think about um, bri- brain science with horses, do they do do any of them operate with with a left brain mode and a right brain mode with horses? As I understand amygdalas, no, no, that would be my guess as um, well. But. But I also know that methods of training, uh, and and you know you've heard me do it just here. It's it's like we we humans like to categorize things. We just love that, and so I'm going to say all horses um, live on this spectrum of their autonomic nervous system, and some of them are more reactive, and some of them are more stoic. But within that spectrum, yeah, there are going to be differences that are breed related and sex related and um, and uh, they will respond differently. And then over the years, I feel like I have gone to, um, you know, I, I hear people describe things in different ways. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the, her, her, I think what left and right brain means to us doesn't mean the same thing to them. No. That's what I think. Yeah, I think so too. And um, when we talk about the horses being on this spectrum with teen stoic and, and yeah, um, can we, um, do, do you think that in a group of horses that they have different roles like, like people have? Um, that kind of, uh, they all serve a purpose within the herd. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Because it's... Yeah, and, yeah. and you know, the first thing I'm going to say is we have to get over thinking that the horse with the most anxiety is the alpha horse. <laughs> the alpha horse, you don't usually figure that out until they die and the herd comes apart. The alpha horse is some quiet horse that doesn't look uh, special. That's my experience as well. Now, for that, I have a young mare, and um, I love her. 
and her leadership style is to flag her tail, gallop around and scream, oh my God, we're all gonna die at the top of her lungs. And the geldings have not bought on yet. She's, she's not young, she's 11. Um, <laughs> it's just the way she does it. And yeah, I think she serves a purpose in the herd even at that. I think that, uh, you know, people want so much to say, my, to talk about this ladder. And horses have much more nuance than that. But I think it's, with and, the, it's like with the Stalin on top of the mountain. It's very easy for us yeah. to see that part of the conversation. And then we kind of and, tend to think that that's it. And then we fail to we see beyond that. And we want to categorize it. that. Yeah. Yeah. And it changes every year. I mean, you know, the problem with saying your horse always does something is that he doesn't. You know, and that's when you're caught off guard. You'd be smarter um, to look at your horse with brand new eyes every single day. Um you know, that's what living with horses is about. It's about the big what if, you know, the big who are you today? I I have to say that I feel blessed to have spent so many years with horses just because that quality. Because when I have to meet them where they are today, then I'll also have to be in the present myself. Yeah, and I think for me, um, these... I'm so lucky. I'm just going to brag because I'm just so lucky. Uh, up until this year, um, the last few years, I have been so blessed to travel and give clinics internationally and across the US. And so what it means to be a horse trainer for most of us is we get to work with 20 horses at a time or maybe 25 and they come and go and, um, and all trainers hopefully learn from the horses they work with. Our continuing education is that we get offered a horse to work with that has a, a, a challenge that we haven't had faced before. So over these last years, instead of 20 horses, I've met hundreds of horses and they are each brand new because that is the job of a clinician is to be brand new eight rides a day um, to be brand new no matter where you're at and for me it's it's just been this opportunity of learning that I could have never had any other way I, I you know how else can you get to be around that many different horses in different environments and um not only is it a wonderful thing to get to stand shoulder to shoulder with breeds of horses that don't exist in the United States, but you know, it's just such an incredible treat um, to be able to have such a large group to learn from. Do you have any particular horses from your um, years as a trainer that really kind of are etched into your memory forever? Oh God. I have a traveling herd. <laughs> Some of, many of them are dead now and that just means that they travel easier with me. Um, sometimes I visualize, 
like me in the arena with a rider, a horse and rider, and then the arena with like 200 horses around it. I mean, I have just met so many incredibly special horses and horses who, um, you, you know, just had a lot that they wanted to say. Um, some that were shy about saying it. Um, I've had that experience. It, you know, it's like if you can't fall in love with horses again every day, don't have my job. But, you know, there'll be a moment every, you know, not uncommonly when a horse will offer me something that is dear. And, you know, especially I've worked a lot with rescue horses and rehabbing horses and, you know, their resilience just makes me feel um, humble and besotted. And, um, and you know, this is about the worst thing I'll say about horses. They really don't like us that close to them. They can't see us. They like us a little farther away. And, you know, I will just be exploding with love and I will do the reasonable thing. I will put the horse first. And that means that I shut up and stand back and listen to them a little teary eyed. <laughs> you know, um, I think one of my big surprises uh, in turning professional back when I did was a slow awareness that not all trainers loved horses. Um, the people I worked with did. And I just thought we were all that way. And, um, you know, it's a good question to ask your trainer. Do you love horses? Yeah. Oh, are you passionate about horses? Hmm. Yeah. You also talk about riding as an art form. It, Saying that riding well, yeah. is an art. Well, yeah. And, you know, Xenophon would tell you that. I, I'm not the first person to have said it. But, you know, but, you know, I don't think that we talk about the creative aspect of it enough. Um, whether you um, have an elder horse on the ground or uh, you're riding, it is an art. Communication is an art. Writing is an art and riding is an art. And then there's just this one other thing. <laughs> and, you know, this is how, I, I, can I just say I hate science and I always have. I, I, am, I was a professional artist before I was a horse trainer. The idea of me chirping in all the time about science is just appalling to me. But let me do it one more time. <laughs> Please. Horses are, uh, the yin and yang symbol of horses is half science and half art. It is creativity um, and understanding. And so we have horses that seem as if they're hardwired to spook. We have horses that seem to be happy uh, to perform. And I think genu genuinely are. Um, for that horse who has been frightened so much, 
that he's just hardwired to spook, yeah, he can build new neural pathways, new dendrites in his brain. What is the activity in the physical world that creates that in his brain? Curiosity, that's creativity. So when my horse gets to the tarp, I want him curious about it. He's not gonna be curious about it if I'm banging a rope on his butt. He's not gonna be curious about it if I'm you know, incessantly clucking. Um, I am searching for the art in how I can, uh, one of the clinics I teach is called dressage rhymes with massage. I am curious in the saddle, I, you know, I mean, really what is in it for them to carry me around? Well, could I ride in such a way that biomechanically his body warmed up and got supple and got strong and he felt strength in his body as opposed to constant correction. If he could feel strong in his body, I can tell you horses pull to get to the arena if the arena is where all the good things happen. Well, that happens because of our creativity. Now I'm gonna say the mean thing. Horses like arenas just about as interesting as their riders are. If you get in the arena and have fun, your horse loves the arena. If you take him there to punish him, no brainer, a trail ride's gonna look better to him. <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, I just want to um, maintain a creative attitude in my own mind and a curious attitude in my horse's mind. So when you have put on a bridle and a saddle and, and led your horse into the arena, what would be... Like I wouldn't say your average lesson because it's going to be the horse that day, you that day and everything. But can you give like an example of, of your mindset and how you, how you think, feel, start off when you, when you ride yeah. your horse? So that's going to start out in the pasture. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... <laughs> It's going to take forever. Um, I'm going to halter in a way that encourages my horse to volunteer. And so uh, I'm going to get my halter around and he's going to look away and I'm going to exhale because that's a calming signal. So I'm talking to him. The conversation starts there. Is it a calming signal for him as well to look away? Absolutely. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily mean fuck off. I don't want to go anywhere today. It's a. It can also be well, his no, way that, of. Can I tease you about this? Yeah. No, that's an insecure human opinion. There. Yeah. That's a frontal lobe thought. Yeah. Oh when yeah. He, he looks, looks away. away. <laughs> <laughs> he looks away, and he's just saying, "I just need a minute." And by the way, when I'm in a social situation and I feel like somebody is. Um, tiresome or loud or maybe rude I have a tendency to go like this or I'll refuse to make eye contact tell me you don't do that <laughs> you know it's yeah 
and and you know that's the deal we have to we speak this language that's why we think horses read our minds they don't they read our bodies we're literal um we just don't know we are and so yeah i'm gonna take him you know it's gonna be really pleasant to tack up um I'm going to go to the arena and I'll probably begin by leading him from behind. And this is, a, you know, a lot of trainers do this in different ways. I'm really committed to it because it it's asking my horse instead of me saying, you know, I'm really smart. And I think my horse is going to be afraid of that dark corner. <laughs> so I'll just drag him over there and scare him with the corner. Um, <laughs> I'm going to lead from behind and my horse is going to walk around the arena and look at the things that interest him. Curiosity. Then I'm going to, yeah, mm. that's all I care about. Then we're going to go to the mounting block and I'll probably spend some time scratching him there. Uh, for my personal horses, you know, the mounting block is our happy place. Um, I'll start with a yearling, start teaching him to stand next to the mounting block by creating the idea for them that perhaps a human standing on a mounting block can scratch in places that other humans on the ground cannot. And the mounting block just becomes the best place. Um, I'm gonna take the first walk my horse gives me and I'm gonna say, good, excellent, perfect. I'm gonna ride for 20 minutes on a neck ring. I'm not gonna touch his face for 20 minutes period. I'm going to warm up his top line. Then I'm going to warm up his ribs. Then I'm going to ask his shoulders to warm up. For 20 minutes, we are going to feel good. And then I might train something for a few minutes, but if he does it well, we quit. If he, he, I, the repetition thing, that's what us humans need. Um, they don't. So I'm never going to drill him. If he gets it right, I'm off. And then at the end of a lesson, I give the horse the last word. So yeah, in that expensive lesson you're paying for with me at a clinic, I'm going to pull your, you off your horse 10 minutes early. I'm going to ask you to step back and I'm going to step back 10 feet at least. And I'm just going to see what the horse has to say. Give me an example of things that horses have said at this precise moment. Um, the first time I, how I started doing this, I had a client who um, I felt like it, she was not very aware of her space around her horse. And I was afraid she was getting complacent and that she might get hurt. So I wanted to have a talk about groundwork. And so then after that, she and I are talking and her horse is this older thoroughbred and he is a saint. He's a really good horse. And he kind of wraps his head around her leg and she thinks he's hugging her. And she says, because I am known as a loudmouth party pooper, she says, I suppose you don't like this either. And I said, well, let's ask him. It's a, <laughs> why wouldn't we? So she stepped away and he started yawning and he yawned like 15 or 20 times. It was 
It was as if he was mocking us. He was yawning so much. And that surprised me. I did not expect that answer. So then I just started doing research. Uh, the longest wait for a calming signal. This shouldn't surprise anybody. It was a percher on mare. And it took her 30 minutes to blink an eye. And we said, good girl, good. And the next lesson, it took her um, about 10 minutes. And what I hope is that when I climb down and step back, that maybe my horse will blow, or maybe he'll shake his head, or he'll just release. And then in my fantasy, I hope to ride a horse and create so little anxiety that when I climb off, he doesn't need to give a calming signal. Mm. Have you? That's yeah. Have you experienced that ever? Yeah, um, my I have a boarder here at my barn, and she and I have worked together with her horse for ages, and you see them a lot in my videos. And yeah, he doesn't he doesn't uh, give calming signals at the end. A stoic horse. Um, maybe you'll look at a stoic horse and you'll see the whiskers on his bottom jaw just vibrate a little bit, a tiny bit. So you're going to exhale and say, good boy. And maybe he'll, maybe you'll see the very tip of his tongue and then you'll say, good boy. And my hope is, you know, with a stoic horse, you could think he's just fine if you leave in 20 minutes instead of 30. The question I'm asking is, uh, my rider's out of the saddle and on the ground. She has clearly released the horse. Has the horse taken the release? That's where, where communication breaks down is we don't wait for their answer. Um, and, you know, if in the middle of a ride, my horse shakes his neck and blows, boy, am I happy. If my, my horse stops, throws his nose down and rubs his nose on his knee, I'm happy about that. And I have been taught to pull that head up and put him back to work. I understand better now what he's doing. Um, and so... It, you know, you think about what's reasonable. Uh, a lot of people climb on a horse, put them to work before they're warmed up. They're not capable of doing the work. They're unhappy about the work. And then by the way, we can't hold a thought that long either. So dressage tests, they run less than 10 minutes, usually five to eight minutes. That's about how long a human can hold a focus why would we think um, in a ride that we should do it longer than that? The tr training has two meanings. One is, can I teach a horse to do a shoulder in? And one is, can I train to make my horse stronger? And 75% of the ride should be strength. Um, training movements is a small part yeah this resonates a lot with me i think yeah because it's i have i have um people around me that have given up riding 
because I think it's uh, either because they think it's cruel or because they think it's unnecessary uh, or because they think of it as forced exercise. And although I kind of follow that idea to an extent, uh, I can't really um, disregard the fact that the horse is also telling me something else. And that is that when I help him to feel good and strong in his body, he loves it. Yeah, and you know that old phrase thrown out the baby with the bathwater? If you don't like the way people train their horses, then train yours differently. And then let me tell you how the horse world is changing. It's not me. It's people who affirmatively train their horse in their neighborhood. And then other people, you know, we have a tendency to think that people watching us are being critical. Um, that's just our own insecurity, but I think most women feel that way. And I think the truth is they're saying, what the hell is she doing? And why is she getting such good results doing so little? Um, why is she breathing with her horse? I'll get her a whip. And then by the time they get back with the whip, the horse is in the trailer. Um, you know, I understand that whole theory. In effect, we should return horses to the wild. I used to say about mine, he would survive in the wild about as long as a poodle which I recognize as bad-mouthing poodles, and I apologize for that. But, you know, how about instead of looking at the worst-case scenario, how about we up our game? How about we learn a new language? How about we stop with the frontal lobe chatter in our own head and in other heads and actually get into a relationship that will help a horse? Um, you know, I have a horse that, uh, you know, I started after I started training this way. And so this calming signals language uh, has been his language with me. It's been my language with him. He always had it. He was born with it. I learned it. And it's all we've ever spoken. And when he gets in trouble, he comes to me. I have never fed him a hand treat. I've never, uh, it, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff I've never done with him, but I can tell you when he's hurt, he runs to me every single time because I am the safe place. Horses don't want domination. They want safety. That's what the beautiful thing about a cooperative herd is safety. So if I can be safe, then I have, then I win if I can be that for my horse. Um, I can't beat him into it. I have to communicate with him in a way that he knows that I'm on his side. And I understand that it would be easier to not ride and it would be easier to look at a horse in a pasture than to try and really deal with their emotions, especially the complicated ones. But they're not dead yet, and I'm not dead yet. 
so there's no reason to quit. Anna, I have to ask you also about your books. Because I, I know you from your blog and from Facebook, but you have written like five, six books, something like that. Six in about a month, I'll have one more out and it's six. And, um, and so writing and writing are way more similar than you would think. Now you're talking to um, another author. So I happen to know that the it's a close connection between the writing and the horse training also when it comes to the chosen words in the Latin and Greek language. It's it's yeah, from derived from the same word. Writing and riding or training a horse and <laughs> writing is the same. It's I Oh god, I'm so not surprised to hear that. <laughs> so, here's what you know as an author. If you have something to say and you're boring about it, uh, you deserve to not be read. Um, I started blogging 11 years ago uh, because I had a book I wanted to write, but I didn't think I was a good enough writer for it. We need to change so, the way we look at ourselves, I think, as women. Because I have to, no, I, I have to, I have to say that I'm, I'm also working as a film producer or a development producer in the film industry, and we get a lot of screenplays, and and all the girls are kind of mm, not really good at this. Should maybe never have handed it in, and the guys are like, "This is brilliant. It's the best stuff you've ever read." And I'm just thinking it's so interesting that we are so different when it comes to viewing our potential. Well, I'm not yeah. saying that I would change. Well, and you know, for me, um, I just wanted to get, I just wanted my words to matter. And it was a huge process for me to think my words could, because, because who am I? And so I started blogging. Um, some of my books are essays from the blogs some of my books are, um, there's a memoir that was the book I wanted to, to write. I wanted to get good enough at writing so that I could write Stable Relation, which is a memoir. And then the other thing I write is poetry, I say in a slightly embarrassed way. Um, Nothing to be embarrassed about because I have heard your Monday poems. Oh, and they're good. I, well, and you know, it's like how you make your words really work hard for you. If you think less is more training horses than write poems. And, you know, I think um, because when I am with horses, I speak the horse language and that does not involve me sobbing into their manes or waxing about how pretty their eyes are, or, you know, I write poems because I love horses. I write poetry because I love living on my farm. Um, I write poems about calming signals, which I almost have to laugh out loud when I say, but that's what the sacred moments with horses are. And, you know, you said it earlier, this, you know, to just, 
I mean, that's why most of us feel if we could just be in a pasture with a horse, we'd be fine. And um, I want to write about the tiny things that happen, the ordinary things that happen. Um, and so my poetry has to do with loving horses, uh, unashamedly. Uh, and, it, and, you know, if you put your horse first, by definition, it doesn't matter if you love horses because your horse is what matters. So where, where I put all of that um, romance of this life, uh, which mainly has to do with blood and guts and mucking and, you know, running in the wind and getting old, you know, all of those, all of those it's it's not that romantic when you actually list them like that. Um, for me, writing the books has been uh, just the best experience. And um, I think if you write, I'm sure that this is an aspect for you too, but uh, you know, in grade school, if you got in trouble, they would make you write the same thing on the blackboard a hundred times. And um, for me, the writing deepens my understanding of what I see and what I know. And so I feel like um, as a trainer who writes, I have this constant exercise of deepening my understanding. So I can't really separate the training work from the writing work because the two of them inform each other so strongly they are intertwined yeah yeah can i ask you it's sort of a bit of a personal question maybe but it's been my experience when i write that there is uh things that i write are that is inspired from the real world and and also something that i write that is fantasy but then there is what i refer to another author gave me that keyword as the third place it's that I write something that I learn when I write it. I didn't know before. Have you had that experience with your writing? Yeah. And, you know, I want to say sometimes it's been as silly as a typo. I will type the wrong, you know, my fingers will type the wrong word and I'll look at it and think, oh, that's the right word. <laughs> that's what... That's what I meant. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't think I get mystic messages, but again, this process of learning is not a straight line. Um, it's a spherical event. And I'm gonna hope that it happens every day in different ways. And then if I can see it in this donkey, can I see it in that mare? And if I can see it in that mare, can I see it in this foal? Um, can I look at this beat up old rescue horse who's terrified to have anything around his head? And can I see him as he was as a yearling? And then can I just hold that vision of him until he can remember it? And on one level, that sounds like a fantasy. But I tell you, if you are talking and calming signals with a horse, 
the biggest reason to say yes or good boy is to remind him who he is and who he was. And that's what a shutdown horse forgets is who he was born to be. Um, so yeah, I think that all of these, at least in my mind, all of these things flow together so much that I, I can't draw lines no. too easily. Neither can I. Anna, it's been a wonderful experience to talk to you. It has been. I expected it to be, to be honest. And what I really want to thank you about is, because I've had some episodes in my Norwegian version of the podcast where I talk about the importance of taking notice of the little things. And you presented some of the smaller things that I haven't seen. But I can see them when you're talking about them. So I also want to thank you for broaden my horizon. Thank you. That's what, you know, I get so enthusiastic about calming signals because this is what calming signals are about is, you know, if uh, your eyebrows change and your eyes change, I know something's going on. Well, <laughs> that kind of, you talked about what it's like to become older and then I want to also check out something else with you because when you have spent decades reading horses and you have grown to become an experienced and older, wiser woman, as we all do at some point, uh, most of us anyway, have you experienced that... Um, um, oh, I kind of lost the thread for some reason. That you... I think I know the answer. <laughs> Without having the question. Wonderful. Please. Well, we all have this question. I think um, we get, we women get to a certain age and we say, not as good as I used to be, not as athletic as I used to be. I can't ride as well as I used to. And I got to tell you, I think. Uh, just speaking for myself, lacking hormones is a real advantage in working with horses. I think postmenopausal women do a great job with horses. No, we're not as courageous as we used to be. And estrogen is the courage hormone. You bet, we are short that. But we have years of experience, we have compassion. We are less worried about what people think and more willing to walk our own path. I think that we have a capability and understanding of horses at this age that we were nowhere near when we were younger. And if I am supposed to like somebody who knows how to stay on a terrified horse, that doesn't get a lot of respect from me. Um, I have a lot of respect for patience and letting less be more and a myriad of skills that women have that draws horses to us. Um, sometimes we get hung up listening to trainers uh, and sometimes it can be hard 
to march to your own drummer. But I see it more and more and more. And um, I think, you know, I'm not bragging about being old. I'm just saying horses like me this way. <laughs> so much more than when I was younger. That's all I can say. And, you know, I see that skill more and more and more. Um, the question is our own self-esteem and confidence. And that can be hard to get a hold of at this age if you listen to your culture. If you listen to your horse, it's real easy. <laughs> I, um, uh, I remember my question now. Have you experienced that reading horses have made you more capable of reading humans? Oh, yes. Yeah, and there's a really simple reason. I think most horse people are introverts, and most of us would rather be with animals than people. Are you one of those people, I'm, Anna? Oh, oh, God, yes. You're introvert. It, oh, yes. You look, <laughs> you could have fooled me. <laughs> I have something I want to be heard about horses because horses have given this me so I recognize. much. Yeah. And when I am done here, I will run in the other room. I will most likely get a glass of wine. I will, you know, I might have to go in the barn for a while. Um, I think most of us are introverts and um so you can speak never, up for the horse, but not necessarily for yourself, if you know what I mean. Well, I, and I think some of us are that way. But, you know, more than that, for me, it's, you know, I wouldn't try with people. The only thing I would try for to change myself, are you kidding? I'm not all that easy to get along with. And I don't really... I'm not what you would call a people pleaser, but I have this attachment to horses. And horses are the one thing in my life that I will change for and I have needed to change for since I was a little girl. I always had to get better to be with my horses. And it's the horses that have made me more palatable to my own species. And it is the horses that have given me a tolerance for people and a patience with people that I didn't have before. And so, yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, you know, I am that person who uh, stands in front of groups of people to speak because I am rich from what horses have given me. And then I run to a hotel room and hide and I don't have dinner with people. I mean it, I'm, <laughs> I am an introvert, but I think that just makes me like everybody else. Um, you know, uh, I've met a handful of extroverts who have horses, um, but you know, generally speaking, horses like introverts, <laughs> we're, we're quieter. Bummer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Anna, thank you ever so much for this uh, talk. 
And please I hope tell we me. Get to meet. Yeah, uh, please tell me <laughs> that you're coming to Scandinavia. Because uh. I really think that the way you approach horses and your philosophy and your way of working with the calm signal and the, you know the, the little things that really are big things for the horses, that would be a perfect injection of, you know, it would be it would be perfect for us, I think, where we are in Norway at this time. To have that I would kind love of to. yeah. So I would love so to. let's just get the COVID and all that stuff out of the way, and then afterwards, <laughs> let's get back to the idea of getting you to Scandinavia because I really think that this voice resonates in my country. Thank you, Anna. <laughs> I am hoping for better days. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. You have just heard episode two of Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. But this episode isn't over quite yet. The interview with Anna Blake took place at 3 a.m. in the morning because of the time difference in Norway and Colorado. So after I went off to bed, I realized the minute I hit the sheets that there was this one question that I forgot to ask and it really kept bugging me for at least an hour before I went to sleep. So the next morning I wrote Anna an email and I wrote my question in that email. It said, how do you distinguish between the horse saying wait by using his calming signals and the horse saying no? And Anna answered immediately and this is what she wrote back. It is almost always that they need a moment. It takes a severely damaged horse to say no. And they are usually the ones trying hardest to be resilient, to lay down their fears because they want to feel safe. It takes time for a horse in that situation, but patience is a virtue. And until I get a hard no, I stay in the conversation. And she added, I don't ask a question that I get a hard no on. I know he wants to get along, so I stay polite and take time. If the human doesn't pick a fight, there is no fight. Now the only thing remaining is thanking my composer, Frederick Blom, thanking Anna Blake for being a guest. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you. <laughs>